Morning, Crosswalk. How are we doing this morning, this holiday weekend? You guys ready? How many of us have uh, canines at home? How many are, are worried already about, yeah, what's happening? Uh, Thursday night was the first large explosion by our home. Our dog Charlie's tail immediately went down. And that's how it'll be for the next several days. Um, oh, look, there's light. Um, so uh, let me be the first, though, uh, to say this morning, rabbit, rabbit. I don't know if any of you do that, play that. First uh, day of the month, if you say rabbit, rabbit to someone else before they do, you get their luck. So I've stolen all of your luck, you're welcome. Uh, just for this month, though, and I need it because uh, in the Adventist faith tradition, we have what we call camp meeting coming soon. Uh, and, and your pastors need a little extra prayer this month uh, because it's a whole lot of work. Uh, so if you guys want to spend four or five days uh, helping us set up the place, uh, we would appreciate it. Um, but we would also never think to ask. So, except for right now. Um, we are glad you're here. If you guys came last week and, and we, the, the church that rents this part of the building had a block party, I know that there were a few people anyway that came and were like, oh, I don't know what's going on there, and then turned away. So sorry for the confusion, um, but we're glad that you're here with us this weekend. This is week two of a series called The Little Letters. We've got three more weeks after this one, and it's a great thing to go through a book or a few books from Scripture in the summer because travel schedules are all over the place. We've got tons of people gone this weekend, but you can continue to follow along in the Scriptures. So we are in the book of First John, um, and this is a letter that was written by the Apostle John. Most people think there's some variances, like Pastor Tim talked about last week. But most people think it was the Apostle John that wrote it to a church that he loved, a congregation that he loved in the town of Ephesus. But it is likely that the book, the letters, were shared far past Ephesus into all the churches in the early church movement throughout Asia Minor. And the reason for that was because John was a legend. At this point, he is the last living apostle, the last disciple who had walked with Jesus, saw firsthand what Jesus had done. So John is more than just a leader in the early church. John is very much like a father figure to this early church movement. And that's important. It's something that I understand on both sides of the coin. I have been blessed in my life for many years to have a church, a spiritual father, someone who would listen, uh, pray with me, help correct me when I need it, uh, someone who would share with me from his wealth of wisdom of a life dedicated to following Jesus. But I've also had the privilege of being on the other side of the coin. For 18 years of my life, I worked as a university chaplain, which meant that I worked with thousands of young adults over those years, between the ages of 18 to 23-ish, um, and I got to journey with them. And they will forever be called my kids. Doesn't matter how old they are, some of you are in this room, um, and you will always be my kids. You age, I do not. I stay perfect and healthy and young all the days of my life. But you age. And I'm still anxious. I still check on Facebook. I, I kind of stalk all my kids um, and see how they're doing in their lives and what they're going through and what they're celebrating, what, what maybe is a challenge for them. They're still my kids after all these years. The only time when it got really weird was when one of my kids told me that they just dated somebody older than me. That was a little weird. Too much information <laughs> for me. But um, 
anyway. And I feel like that's how, that's how John saw these people. In fact, in the series guide, uh, which you can download on our app or you can look at on uh, our website, you can download the series guide. Pastor Tim wrote this one, and he talks about, he shares a story from the early church father, Jerome, uh, who had a story of the Apostle John where he said, that by the time that John writes these letters, he is so old that he cannot, be, he cannot walk into the congregation anymore, that he has to be carried in. And when he is carried in, they all kind of sit around and wait for John to speak. And when he does, he often says the same thing. He says, little children, my version of kids, right? He says, my little children. And then he follows that up with a command, which is love one another. And so as kids often do, they start saying, you know, Dad, (laughs) you keep using the same thing over and over and over again. You're just saying the same things. My kids say that to me all the time. In fact, my kids, I can tell when that happens because their eyes roll back in the back of their heads, right? I think that's, in fact, I have a theory, and I'm not, you know, a doctor. I didn't didn't do well in biology, but my theory is, is that the eye roll muscle develops around 12 or 13, you know? And so when that happens, you know. You know what the rest of your life is. Um, so that might have been happening to John. So they asked John, why does he keep saying the same thing over and over and over again? What John says is great. Again, this is the tradition. John says, because it is the Lord's command, and if this is all you do, it is enough. If this is all you do, love one another, it's enough. There are times when I feel like that, when I feel like I'm up and I'm kind of saying the same things every week in different ways. But the end of it is always love one another. And for John, he had gotten through a lot in his life, and now he's looking at the things that matter most. And when I read through this, John, John has seen many things. He's heard many things. He obviously witnessed the miracles of Jesus firsthand. He has wrestled with the Pharisees and the religious leaders over things that he used to think were really important. He's seen the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem, be destroyed. He has watched persecution to the extreme, having all of his close friends in the church killed. John has been through a lot, and now he's reflecting on his life, and he's telling them the things that matter most in this life. In his old age, he recognizes that all that matters is Jesus, who he is, and how you and I treat one another because of Jesus. And when I read through these letters, I liken the journey of John to someone that I knew who passed away this year, a man by the name of William Johnson. If you, were back in, if you were with us back in January, Pastor Tim interviewed him on a video that we shared, and Bill passed away in March, but Bill was someone who was like a father to many of us in a movement that was all about Jesus. It was called The One Project, and every time we'd come together, Bill would come and speak, and he just oozed this love and this grace and the spirit of Jesus wherever he went. So when he opened his mouth, we listened. Bill spent much of his career and ministry at the Seventh-day Adventist Church World Headquarters. So he was the editor of the Adventist Review magazine, which is a world magazine. For 24 years, he did that. Over the course of that time, he saw a lot of things too, just like John. He saw the church debate doctrine and questions over doctrine and fighting about issues that obviously are going to face a world church organization when that organization is represented in 200 countries with over 21 million members. Bill had seen it all, politics in the best and worst of situations. 
And then he retired around 2006, but continued to write and serve the church for many years until 2014, when Bill suffered a severe heart attack. That heart attack sent him into the hospital for months with other health complications, in and out of surgeries. Bill said that during this time, for the first time in his life, he couldn't even utter a word of prayer. It wasn't that he was angry with God. It was just that he was exhausted. He was wiped out. He couldn't even pray. He calls this time, he refers to it as standing on the edge, the edge of life and death. And Bill learned two valuable lessons during this time that I'm going to let you tell, I'm going to let him speak in his own words. He said, first, I'm not afraid to die now. I've been to the edge. I've looked over the edge into the abyss, and my friends, it's not so bad. Jesus is there. He's there even when you feel so weak, so terrible that you can't utter a word. Second, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. So many things that used to bother me that made me impatient They don't amount to a hill of beans. All that small stuff I used to sweat, it's nothing, nothing at all. Only one thing matters, only one person matters, Jesus, amen. Thank you for supporting me. Jesus, only Jesus. The church is important, but when you've been to the edge, all that matters is Jesus. Doctrines are important, but they fall away when you've been to the edge. There's only one doctrine that matters, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. When I read through this first letter of John, I can hear Bill's voice. There's only one doctrine that matters, Jesus. And I can hear John's command repeated over and over and over again, love one another. And when I see that, I see Bill's face smile. Today, we're supposed to be in chapter 3 of the letter, but since Pastor Tim spent his entire sermon last week on only four verses in chapter 1, jerk, uh, we're going to do a little bit of catch-up, because at the end of chapter 1, John introduces us to a theme that he's going to carry on through the next three chapters. And in 1 John 1, at the end of that chapter, he says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. After opening his letter, establishing who Jesus is, and that they have seen him and heard him and they testify to him. And after leaning into the importance of community, John begins talking about sin, represented by favorite themes of his, light and dark. Jesus being the light, sin and separation from Jesus being the dark. And I will admit, sin is not my favorite topic to preach about. In fact, I put on my social media that I was going to talk about sin this week, and the fact that more than five of you showed up today is just a blessing. Thank you for coming as we talk about sin. I hate sin. I struggle with sin. I long for sin and its, its effects on this earth to be gone. But it is a common thread that holds us all together, right? The Apostle Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, We all struggle with it, and for John's community, it seems that sin was tearing them apart. They were after their own way and not God's, and in fact, in the first few chapters of 1 John, John uses the word for sin 17 times. This is a huge theme for him for a reason. What's interesting is that he doesn't give a list of the sins that plagued this community. That's something the Apostle Paul would have done. But John doesn't do that. John just seems to talk about the effects 
of sin on us, what happens to us with sin. Here's how he defines it. John says, 1 John 3, 4, everyone who sins is breaking God's law for all sin is contrary to the law of God. So sin is contrary to the law of God, but John continues to make references to the sin he is referring to as he continues in John, 1 John 2. If anyone claims I am living in the light, Jesus being the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. So to John, in context, sin seems to be that which destroys our relationships. Our relationship to God and our relationship to one another which is in direct violation of the greatest commandment according to Jesus, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And this is where we get interpreting the law of God wrong when we don't start with this, the first and most important commandment. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If we could start there, we might have a, live in a better place. So this destruction of relationship is what happened in Genesis 3 when sin first entered the world. We used to walk with God in the cool of the morning, but then sin entered the world our way, and we broke relationship with God, and we went into hiding. And God went chasing after us to build a bridge back into the relationship or to reconcile us is what the scripture uses to improve our relationships with him and each other. So God's answer, <coughs> excuse me, to the sin problem is Jesus. We read this in 2 Corinthians. It says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gives us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned, to be, the sin offering, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This reconciliation seems to be what John has in mind as he's writing his book. Some of the Christians were tearing each other apart because they believed different things about Jesus. And it was not only ruining the church, it was sending out the wrong message of who Jesus actually is. I was talking to one of my spiritual kids recently who was a pastor for quite a few years until he walked away from that recently. There's, uh, I, I believe the statistics right now are every month, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry. Um, and he was one of those. And I asked him what pushed him over, why he left. And he said this, no one ever trained me how to pastor people who hate each other. No one ever trained me how to pastor people who hate each other. John understood this. He went on to write, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. Strong language. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Now we've heard this before from someone else. John's rabbi, Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Now, most people could have heard that and said, okay, well, I haven't actually killed anybody, so I'm good, I'm in the clear. 
right? But then Jesus says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. In other words, if you are angry with someone, it is as if you have murdered them. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been angry with people before. So now I'm included in that category. Now I can't ignore it. Now I have to pay attention. Throughout this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches, he is telling his disciples what it means to be truly righteous. It's not just about looking righteous. It's not just about actions. It's actually about a change in your heart that then overflows into the rest of your life. It's about accepting forgiveness in Christ, recognizing that God is love, allowing his love to penetrate every part of who we are, and then accepting his call to go and love others as he loves us. In fact, in verse 7, John makes an interesting reference that may give us a key to understanding this kind of righteousness. He says, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. Now again, he's not just talking about our actions and what we do. He is talking about what's happening on the inside. Remember, he's not talking about being sinless because he actually says in 1 John, as we read, that if we claim we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves. What John is actually talking about here is true righteousness, which in God's eyes is both an outward and an inward experience. And let me explain. In the Hebrew... The word for personal righteousness is the word tzedakah. This has to do with your inward life, your inward connection to God. But what's interesting is that the Hebrew term for outward justice is identical. Tzedakah. This is the mindset with which John writes. You can't say you have an inward connection with Christ if it doesn't show in how you love in your life. The two are connected, one in the same. This implies that the historical biblical understanding of devotion to God was this. To be righteous is to care for the poor, to care for others, and to care for others is to be righteous. In the ancient Hebrew understanding of righteousness, a community practicing private spiritual practice that doesn't also practice costly public compassion is not only dysfunctional, it's oxymoronic. You understand that? In the ancient Hebrew understanding, a community practicing private spiritual practice that doesn't also practice public compassion is dysfunctional. The measure of a person's walk with God is in how we treat one another. You cannot come into an authentic relationship with a loving God without becoming a loving person inside and out. We see this in a confrontation Jesus has with a religious leader. Jesus scolds the religious leader by saying, you Pharisees, You're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools! Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? Notice the exclamation marks, right? What does all this mean? Of course, let's let's be clear that the New Testament didn't actually have uh, any grammatical exclamation marks, commas, periods, any of that kind of stuff, but it's an emphasis in the original language. So what does all this mean? It means that sin destroys our relationships to God and to each other. Sin is about self-preservation at all costs. It's about control, our way. Sin erodes our connections to each other. The way to remove this damaging effect of sin is through Jesus, who cleanses us when we ask for forgiveness. But it's not enough to just ask for forgiveness and move on as if nothing has changed. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. 
No, when we truly receive what Christ has done and who God is, it changes us. In her beautiful book on the life of Christ called The Desire of Ages, Ellen White writes, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the love of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Now, don't get caught up in a thoughtful hour. You don't wake up and set your timer in 60 minutes. She's just saying, take time to contemplate the life of Christ, to listen to. I, I had a student who every day would wake up and he would read the closing scenes of the life of Christ. Every day, um, he would read that just so that he could imagine, he could put himself into the story. Do that. Spend time with that because when you do, as the old saying goes, by beholding, we become changed. John continues in 1 John 3, and this is a long passage, so listen. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we, we will be confident when we stand before God. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. I love that. Don't just say you love other people. Show it. Live it. Do it. When we love with our actions and not just our words, we have fellowship with God. We are united to God. We are in relationship to God, and we seek relationships with others. And not just people who think like us or behave like us or believe like us. We are drawn to all people because Jesus was drawn to all people and died for all people because all people deserve God's love. Jesus described the process like this. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. So all that said, here's my question for us to consider. If Jesus lived a life of love, if he commanded us to love one another as he loved us, if the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, why do so many Christians seem to have so little love for other people in their hearts? I've really been struggling with this a lot lately because it seems like everywhere you look, some quote-unquote Christian is in the news doing something horrible, saying something horrible, or for some reason, my TikTok and Instagram algorithm is set to a lot of these types of uh, feeds. Um, and, and, and look, like, if you want to stay a Christian, don't actually look at a comment thread. I've been doing that, and it's not good for my heart. Because I get so frustrated. Because I want to say, is that the Jesus you know? The Jesus is just sitting there pointing his finger and, and calling other people horrible, awful names? Man, it's so hard to look at so much of that stuff. And you could say, well, it's just the, the bias of the media or something. But, but we've, we've given the media plenty of things to work with, right? It's so hard to see so much hatred and judgment and vitriol coming from professed Christians. Whether it's towards the LGBT community or some other community, 
or it's be, uh, uh, towards abortion rights activists or a political party or ideology because we've confused, um, we've confused nationalism with Christianity, not the same thing, or forcing our understanding of scripture on others or really pushing back on anyone who has different beliefs than we do. So many of us are spending so much time pointing our fingers at other people that we think are sinful or worldly or we're trying to stay away from those people. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus entered into their lives. He came down and became one of us for pity's sakes. If he had stayed away from the sinful and the worldly, he never would have come in the first place. So why are we doing that? We're spending so much time pointing at other people, maybe because then we don't have to think about ourselves. Maybe if we think, well, that person's really bad, I'm not that bad, we feel a little bit better. It's a little cathartic, right? We've forgotten that our call isn't to judge or condemn, but to love and introduce people to Jesus. I don't often share pithy memes or quotes uh, from, from social media, but I found one recently that came up in my feed that I liked quite a bit. It comes, it's inspired by John 3:17, after for God so loved the world. Um, but it goes on, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The quote was this, if God didn't send his son to condemn the world, I doubt he sent you. That one I like. If we could get that right, what a difference we could make. If we could stop putting our energy into defending our rights or proving to other people how right we are or trying to defend God, I'm pretty sure God doesn't need us to defend him. Okay? He's big enough to take care of it himself. Nor do we have to defend truth because unless your truth is really fragile, if your truth is fragile, then yeah, maybe we have to defend it, but I don't think truth is fragile. We spend so much time doing these things. If we could stop putting so much energy into these things, maybe we could actually be known as people who love really, really well. Little children, John said, love one another because if we could do that, it would be enough. Love one another because if we could do that, it would be enough. I don't know what you struggle with and what you spend your time thinking about in life and spiritually what what trauma you've had in your life or What has been done to you? I don't know all those things, but I know this. There is nothing more healing than experiencing the love of God and then sharing that with other people. There is nothing more healing than that. That's why here at Crosswalk, so I'll say this, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a room full of of people in the Oregon Conference that are also thinking and praying about considering planting a church. And as the presenter was talking, one of the things the presenter said, this is pretty common, easy stuff. It's in business as well as in church planning. Like the first thing you got to do is figure out your mission statement. You got to know your mission statement. You got to embody your mission statement. You got to live your mission statement so people know what you're about. And when people know what you're about, they also know what you're not about, right? And, And while he was talking about this, I couldn't help but smile. I couldn't help but smile because the mission statement of Crosswalk was established long before we came here to Portland. The mission statement is actually 2,000 years old. We say it all the time, right? If a visitor comes to Crosswalk, they're going to hear it several times because our mission statement is one word. Love well, right? Because Jesus said to love one another as I have loved you. This is how all people everywhere will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. And this is how we clean the inside of the cup. We volunteer to serve and and, and hand out food during the week 
We donate blood in a couple of months. We look around us and we, we look for the needs in our community and we try to figure out how are we positioned to help care for those needs because we love one another. We look at the people that come in here and, and we love every single person that comes in. You don't have to believe what we believe. You don't have to act the way we act. We don't, you don't have to dress the way we dress, although if you all bought, you know, Lovewell t-shirts, that'd be cool. I just say, don't just buy a t-shirt. Do what it says. Love one another so all people everywhere will know we are disciples. All of us right now could pull out our phones and we could look through our contacts and we could find someone who we know is disconnected, we know is hurting, we know needs community, and we know needs love. Pick one person and start praying over them. Pray for them to have an experience with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And if you feel like it's the right thing, invite them to come with you some Saturday. Come and worship. Come experience love and grace and goodness and mercy and joy. That is what we're here for. John started this chapter by saying this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. We are children of God. We are called to be different than the world. How? By how we love. And when you boil life down to that which matters most, when you realize that the only doctrine that really matters is Jesus, you are left with three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Crosswalk, please answer the call to love really, really well. And then let's together go on the adventure of the kingdom of God and watch lives and communities be changed, all because we in this room decided we're going to answer the call and love well. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for setting the example for us. You didn't just tell us how to love, you showed us. We love because you first loved us. And there are a whole lot of people in this world that haven't experienced that kind of love. Love, they've experienced love that comes with strings or they've experienced a love that betrays them. And some of us in this room are in that category. We have been hurt by people that were never supposed to hurt us or, or by churches. Father God, I pray that you would, you would help us to spend time just reflecting on the God who is in every way, in every essence, love incarnated. We would receive that love. We would walk into a community that seeks to love so that we can find healing and then we can go from this place and we can love other people so that they too can know what it is like to be loved unconditionally and never wonder and never worry if that love is going to go away because it never will. Your love is higher and wider and longer and deeper than anything we could possibly imagine. So Father God, I pray you would strengthen us with that love and you would help us to share it with other people. Thank you so much for believing in us, for planting this church and this movement, giving us our call. Help us embody it and live it and change the world for the kingdom of God. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.